Tonight's discussion, Wages of Whiteness in the Arts Economy, is one of a series of public forums occurring as part of Decolonize This Place, a three-month project by MTL Plus on invitation of Common Practice New York. From September the 17th to December 17th, um, and next weekend, on that note, um, do make a note in your diaries as we'll have a closing event that will bring together a lot of the work that's happened here through the last three months, um, with more details coming early next week. Um, 55 Walker Street has been converted by the Artist Organizer Collective into an action-oriented community space around the issues of degentrification, indigenous struggle, black liberation, free Palestine, and global wage workers. Before handing over to Andrew Ross of MTL Plus, who will introduce more about the work that has gone in tonight's event, as well as the participating speakers, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thank you to Common Practice New York, as well as the Friends of Artist Space, the Artist Space Program Fund artists, and all of you here tonight for your ongoing support of the work that happens here. So thank you very much, and over to Andrew. Thank you, Harry. Uh, I'm Andrew Ross. I'm one of the facilitators here at Decolonize This Place. I uh, want to begin by acknowledging this evening that we are meeting on occupied land. This is Lenape territory. And we are gathering to uh, discuss a topic that I think is probably of great interest, great concern to many of you here, which is really how to sustain the work that we do the work that you do inside the art world economy, uh, which is, as you know, increasingly anchored by ultra-luxury speculation on the one hand, and in addition is staffed, disproportionately staffed, um, by, uh, by underpaid or unpaid labor, whether that's a <coughs> gallery or uh, museum employees, whether it's artists themselves, whether it's interns, whether it's art handlers, whether it's construction laborers. Um, in addition, um, the reward system in the art world is highly racialized. And all the available evidence uh, leads us to believe that uh, the upper, reach, upper reaches, the upper institutional reaches of the art world are extremely white. And, um, and, and this economy gets increasingly browner as you go down the skills hierarchy and, uh, and is a prime example of racialization even compared to other cultural sectors uh, which show a similar pattern. So uh, Decolonize This Place is, um, is a, this three-month residency we've been doing here which has been trying to uh, operate off uh, an alternative economy. We've been innovating as we go along and trying to adapt to circumstance and trying really to put into practice decolonial principles in the action-oriented uh, events and, um, and initiatives that we incubate here and push out into the world. So um, we've tried to gather here this evening uh, several voices uh, that come from different uh, parts of the economy, the art world economy. And, um, and everyone will have um, from five to ten minutes to, to set the conversation going. And I'm not going to waste time by reading out everyone's bios. They're in the handout uh, that you have, so you can consult the longer bios there. 
Um, but we'll be speaking in this order, uh, Lise Soskolm from WAGE and Mabel Wilson from Who Builds Your Architecture and um, Eva Mayabel Davis, who's from uh, Museum Hugh and El Salon, uh, Amin Hussein from Decolonize This Place, Sneha Ganguly from um, uh, Rajas Art Services, right? Uh, Nia Natic is an intern here at Artist Space, and uh, and then David Joselet, who among other positions is a is a board member here at Artist Space, will offer some comments in response to uh, the voices that you hear. So, Lise, uh, you can set us in motion. Is this on? Can you guys hear me? Okay. Whoa, it's a bit awkward. Um, so I took a risk and wrote something because uh, you never know what's going to come out when you write when you write something, and I'm not sure if anything did. So that was the risk I took. Um, that's just about three pages. Should be about ten minutes. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> okay. Uh, Decolonize This Place has been an effort to, among other things, decenter the whiteness that operates art institutions, and in particular, the art institution we currently occupy. So in entering into this conversation, I fully recognize WAGE as its own institution that can and must play a role in decentering whiteness. A role because this project is, of course, much larger than WAGE. So while I don't want to make WAGE the focus here, I believe it's my responsibility as its organizer to take seriously the question that's on the table as it relates to WAGE directly. And that is, why has WAGE focused on correcting certain inbuilt inequalities but hasn't yet incorporated a discussion of the economic underpinnings of white supremacy into its work? And that question is in the description of the event. So I'm quoting uh, the event. <laughs> Um, I want to try and answer this question, but doing so requires me to first articulate the inbuilt inequalities that WAGE has focused on correcting. So I hope you'll follow along as I do the two things that are required of me here. One is to introduce what WAGE does to those of you who aren't familiar with it, and the other is to account for why WAGE has chosen to do the things that it has, the way it has. So this means briefly tracing WAGE's history in terms of strategy because its evolution is represented by a series of decisions made around the effort to realize a very specific goal. That goal is the regulated payment of artist fees by the nonprofit institutions that contract the work of artists. To understand the decision to focus so myopically on what seems relatively inconsequential, given the many levels of structural inequity that characterize the art field, including and especially white supremacy, we have to rewind back to 1969 and to the formation of the Art Workers Coalition. That's what WAGE did when it came together in 2008. WAGE looked at the demands that were made by an open, multiracial coalition of artists, filmmakers, and writers over a period of three short years. Their demands targeted museums with an insistence on their reclamation as something like a form of representative democracy, accountable to that era's civil rights, anti-war, and women's movements asserted through what we might now consider to be the moral rights of artists. The demands of the Art Workers Coalition were many and they were interlocked. After three years of awe-inspiring work that called for a redress of the institution in its totality, the coalition fractured in and around its multiplicity of demands. The end result was a single concrete policy change, admission-free days at museums that are now corporately sponsored. 
Noting this, Wage cho chose to work toward a single achievable goal and one that was germane to the historical moment it had formed around. So that historical moment was early 2008, just before the financial crisis, as the gross excesses of the art market were being concretely felt. Sales volumes had expanded by 55% in 2007 alone. Wage asserted that artists were being paid in exposure instead of cash money, and that despite our cultural affluence, many were living in relative material poverty, relative to the surrounding excess and to how increasingly unlivable the city was becoming. We demanded to be paid for cultural value and capital value. Without being paid, we were being exploited. Exploited because we function as an unpaid labor force that supports a multi-billion dollar industry. So the argument was made on the basis of artists' economic disenfranchisement as a constituency, as a block, as a class. So fast forward to 2014. <clears throat> Excuse me. We came up with our own model for compensating artists since wages work takes place in the absence of state regulation. As you probably all know, we certify those nonprofits that pay fees according to our guidelines and standards. We're banking on institutions to self-regulate and use what I like to call administrative direct action to remind them that unless they back up the moral and political claims they make through their programs with material, equitable, institutional policy, that they're failing as institutions. It's important to note that not unlike artists, nonprofits are uniquely able to get away with murder by using their status as public charities, which appear to function outside the commercial marketplace, to obfuscate deeply entrenched biases and inequity. And I would submit that forms of white supremacy are maintained in the arts precisely in this way, through a kind of moral supremacy. But back to wage certification. Um, as initially proposed, the plan was, also, was to also regulate programming and staff constitution by race and gender and enforce equitable pay scales for all employees. The way I saw it, this was a chance to finally get beyond the myopia of the artist fee, or at least to use it to address other connected forms of injustice. But it was collectively decided that making too many demands would mean the failure of the project, the, again, looking back at the Art Workers Coalition. And so wage certification was launched as a program that recognizes equity on hyper-specific economic terms. Race and gender were off the table in terms of that program. The most important of these hyper, of these terms of hyper-definition are how wage defines artist and what an artist fee is compensation for. So I'm just gonna tell you what those are because I think they're important to this project in general. Um, artist is anyone who supplies content in a nonprofit visual arts presenting context. And artist fees are the expected remuneration for an artist's temporary transactional relationship with an institution to provide that content. Payment is not for the content itself, but is for its provision. Paradoxically, applying this kind of hyper-definition is also a way of emptying out the figure of the artist. Artist becomes content provider, artist becomes contracted worker, artist becomes just like everyone else, so that artist stops seeing itself as exceptional and expects to be paid just like everyone else. This is important because we start to be able to link the previously unpaid work of artists to the low-wage work of art workers without fusing them together since they are in fact different. One is wage labor and the other is not. But what they have in common is their exploitation, uh, what they have in common is that their exploitation takes place because it is enabled to. I guess all exploitation is that way to a certain extent. Um, and this brings us to the present. Over the past year or so, Wage has been working on a new program called Wagency that we expect to la launch in the spring. Wagency is an effort 
to organize artists through the formation of a broad-based coalition. At its core is a certification program that certified, certifies artists on the basis of their commitment to only work with those institutions that agree to pay them according to wage standards. We will also hold wage-certified artists accountable for paying equitably those who contribute to producing the content of their work, namely artist assistants, but also dancers, actors, and so on. So in the process of developing this project, it quickly became clear that not all artists can afford to withhold labor and turn down opportunities, and that any effort to organize artists would mean organizing across class. This is an inversion of where wage began when it defined artists, as I said before, on the basis of being economically disenfranchised broadly as the constituency, as a block, and as a class. The steep class stratification between artists that characterizes the field as a whole today, along with the multiple class positions that can often be active within a single artist, makes Wagency's primary function one of providing artists with, of varying means with the tools and resources to negotiate a fair deal or to withhold content when necessary and to do so collectively and in solidarity with one another. I describe Wagency as a matrix of individual boycotts and as a new form of labor organizing for an atomized and unpaid workforce. It's based on principles of self-organization that are grounded in collective mobilization and it's also an effort to decentralize wage as an organization. So on the one hand, Wagency could provide means of self-regulation, self-organization, and a kind of self-determination, but its introduction is happening concurrently with the urgency of both artists and institutions to engage in processes of decentering, decentralization, and decolonization. I need to think more about this intersection, which is what I was trying, starting to do when I was writing this text. Um, and in the meantime, the question still persists, and I still haven't really answered it. The question was, why has Wage focused on correcting certain inbuilt inequalities, but hasn't yet incorporated a discussion of the economic underpinnings of white supremacy into its work? So it occurs to me that the work of Wage has been a long process of emptying out the constructed figure of the artist as an economic subject, so that it may contain other forms of self-definition beyond those which have been provided for and by us and which keep us in the position of being exploited and of exploiting ourselves. Wage now proposes filling up this container with the hyper-specificity of content provider, but when, when we engage in a very particular labor relation with the institutions that contract our work. But artists can equally be filled up with other forms of self-identification. So I wonder if, the, if this process of emptying out and reconstituting what it means to be an artist has itself been a necessary process of decolonization, but one that will lead to a reckoning with the persistence of white supremacy in the art field and to its rectification, but only as long as it is the implicit responsibility of anyone and everyone who lays claim to artist as an identity. That's what I got. <laughs> Okay, can every, everyone can hear me, yes, I can project out. Uh, thank you all for coming. I think this is gonna be a, a really, um, hopefully dynamic conversation, not only amongst us, but also, also with you. Uh, I am going to ad-lib this, which I don't normally do, so. <laughs> um, but I really do want it to be a conversation, and, and I kind of wanted to talk about it in a, in a sort of personal vein. I think, uh, I think one, this is an amazing space. I'm trained as an architect, but I also work as a historian. 
Um, and I think part of the project, being an African-American woman in academia, but also in a profession, architecture, that uh, Atlantic Magazine described uh, a couple of years ago as one of the whitest professions in America. It's 91.3% white. Um, you know, trying to literally decolonize space, to find a space, an intellectual space, a creative space within the field of architecture also has required that I uh, place the field within a historical context. So I've become also a historian trying to literally decolonize time in, 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 that, in that same way. So part of what I want to talk about is um, maybe some of the things we've done with Who Builds Your Architecture, but I also wanted to bring up aspects of the things that I've been working on and thinking about that are currently also fueling my, my sense of activism and how to respond to this current moment. And it's about the history of white supremacy. One of the things I've been very interested in my own work is what I'm now calling the emergence of the racial paradigm of human difference. Um, and this comes about through the European colonization project. So as Europeans travel around the world and they encounter others, they're constantly producing these kinds of representations of who they encounter, what those, who those people are, what they look like, what they say, um, what they have. Um, and, and, and that starts to fuel ideas about how Europeans exist in the world and how others exist differently. And it starts to become a very, 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 very powerful set of representations that then become operative, some people argue, full force through racial science in the mid-19th century. And that's really the discourse of race that, that we, we actually um, sort of live with today. Um, but part of my work, I'm working on a book called Building Race and Nation, um, kind of looks at the simultaneous formation of the American nation state and the concept of race. And the, the lens through which I'm looking at this is the building of American civic architecture. And specifically what Michelle Obama said, the fact that slaves built the White House. So, so here are these architectural icons, the US Capitol, um, the, the White House, and one could even say the city of Washington, D.C., but what most people don't realize that the only available labor at that moment was enslaved labor, was expropriated labor from Africans that either had been imported directly from Africa or from the Caribbean, um, who became the labor force. They were essentially bought in by buying yearly contracts from the regional plantation owners who, know, who actually had an excess of enslaved labor. The tobacco industry in the Chesapeake region was failing, and this was an available labor pool that then could be brought in to literally clear the land, cut the trees, move all the trees, take them, cut them, make them into to, to, um, lumber. You, you had to build bricks, you had to make lime, you had to quarry stone, you had to dig canals, basically to make the Potomac literally um, um, accessible by ships that were gonna bring in all of the materials to build the city. A lot of that labor was enslaved labor that actually was building Washington, D.C. So it's fundamentally embedded in the formation of our own institutions that herald democracy, freedom, liberty, and justice. And, and you know, if you start to read, and I encourage you all to read the Founding Fathers documents around, around these issues, it's really fascinating how many of them actually recognize the paradox of what it meant to talk about natural rights, that all humans were born equal, and yet many of them owned humans, right? And they're, they're talking about what it meant to be free and what it meant to really own one's own subjectivity and to be self-determined and to then become a citizen and to be a group of citizenry that then can guide this new collective, this new, this new nation state. But in the process of doing that, it also had to recognize that 
that there were differences. There were the, the native peoples that were already kind of on the, land, on the land that they were now occupying. What to do with that? Like, how do you start to rationalize that you are living in the same space, you know, as the native peoples, and yet you're constantly moving them westward, southward, northward, and, and expropriating the land. Um, and so that paradigm of human difference becomes even more solidified. And, and part of what I'm interested in, and, and, and one of the things I wanted to say, was that that leads to the formation of the Smithsonian Institution in the 1830s and 40s, which is a fascinating scientific project. And one of the earliest projects that the Smithsonian takes on is gathering up Native American artifacts, um, sending newly minted what they were calling now scientists westward with parties right that were fighting various native peoples and 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 moving the boundary the manifest destiny boundary of the nation westward uh, and they would go scientists would go and they would collect these artifacts this is exactly why the smithsonian had such an extraordinary connection collection of native american artifacts it was a, it was a founding project of the first museum the first institution to produce culture and knowledge. And it was specifically defined as an American project, one to basically define American civilization, which was a racialized project of establishing an American whiteness through an institutional formation. So it's very much ingrained in the museum project itself. And so I think it's important to kind of recognize how the institution of the museum you know, as, you know, as, 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 as an institutional apparatus uh, is constantly producing these, these, these registers of, of white supremacy. And so um, I think it's important to kind, of, to kind of recognize that question of the labor that was building it. A lot of, there's a really fantastic historian who's actually looking at the beautiful red sandstone that was the original Smithsonian castle. It was actually mined by enslaved quarry workers, many of whom had been owned by George Washington for example. They were descendants of the slaves that had been owned by George Washington. So very, very direct links between the founding fathers, slavery, and literally the production of these kinds of monuments and signifier of American, of American um, democracy. Um, so, so, so the institution of the museum itself is clearly kind of fraught, fraught with these legacies, and I think it's important to recognize. And I, I wanted to kind of make a connection to exactly what Lisa was saying in my own profession, who Builds Your Architecture is a project to try to link precisely the construction workers with the kind of creative intellectual labor of the architects who often see themselves as artists, right? Um, you know, we're creative and, you know, how much money we make doesn't matter, but so many architects have a really hard time making ends meet because the, the wages are so low in the offices, right? And to get into really good offices where it's an in, you know, when I was in school, it was an intern process. So you basically went and you work for some of these famous architects for free. But if you're African American and you got to pay off your debt and you don't have a trust fund or somebody who's paying your rent, it gets really hard to basically get into those offices. So, so it already streamlines who already has access to not only that knowledge, but those recommendations that are going to get you into teaching jobs, into other offices, into exhibitions and so forth. So it's operative on, on, on that level within, you know, how architects are actually trained professionally. Um, but on the other end, you know, architects like would say, well, as Zaha Hadid said um, about um, uh, who was building her FIFA, you know, who would build her FIFA studio. I should be clear about that. It's not under construction. But, you know, there was a question, well, I have nothing to do. You know, I, I have nothing to do with the workers, right? It's a complete dissociation from the group of people who are actually on the ground building it. And the reason that was critical as golf labor and golf... Um, 
the uh, uh, um, uh, ultra-labor faction has made clear uh, is that the labor that's actually on those sites in the Middle East uh, are critical because their labor is in fact forced labor. It's, it isn't as that far from, from enslaved labor, um, essentially. And a lot of in those contexts, it's, it's, it's also racialized. It's Southeast Asians. It's, it's peoples whose racial identities are already marginalized and devalued. So, so it's already, even in a contemporary context, playing into you know, the kind of the, the white intellectual creative thinkers and the actual bodies that are in the field laboring to build to build the architecture. So I think there are a lot, there's a lot to, I think, unpack in, in the institutions and how they're made um, and, and built. And museums are very, very much a part, part of the legacy. So I will leave it there. There are other things that I could certainly um, talk about uh, in regards to other work that, that I'm doing. But you know, who builds your architecture and the project of the linkages of that, um, um, I think are really critical in terms of, of, of understanding how architects have to play a critical role in, in arguing for better working conditions for the people who are actually building many of these major um, institutions around the world. So, thank you. Hello? Yes, okay. Hi, good evening everyone. Um, first of all, thank you so much to decolonize this place for putting this together. It was a real honor for me to come up here tonight as a museum worker um, and also as a representative board member of Museum Hue. Uh, so I want to speak tonight about my personal experiences working in various institutions and at the moment that I wanted to reach out to colleagues to come out to this event tonight, I realized that many of them are working tonight. Um, in museums, in museums that stay open on Friday evening, Saturday nights for, um, for late and long shifts. And especially talking about the front lines of museums today and who those folks are, whether they are your security guards, your um, ticket folks, your folks at the um, in the shops and that are just there making sure that that museum stays open uh, for late evenings. And I found, that I found myself in a really interesting place at that moment, recognizing that I also too work those extra hours on days, Friday nights, Saturday nights. And it was then even more crucial for me to continue um, thinking about these issues in frontline labor, which most of the time are also uh, folks of color. When studies come out showing you the divide of workers um, in the museum, they have all of these numbers. But for me, it's something that I see all the time. I look around and working as a security guard, I get to see not only the museum and who my coworkers are, but also who gets to come in and who I have conversations with working throughout the day in a museum. And those experiences have really, um, really broken down what decolonization means and what that means within museum and within knowledge uh, that the museum is supposed to provide or says it provides to the public. And I wanna know who that public is. Uh, some of the most interesting conversations I've had have been with folks that have never been to a museum that are there because they received a, a pass or they were there on, on a visit and didn't realize that they could even come into the space. 
they were there and didn't understand or didn't have the language to to really feel comfortable in the space. And I've had a lot of these conversations with my coworkers, and I've had a lot of these conversations with the public. Um, one of them was on a recent free education day that the that a museum had, and. I was there as a security guard, and a family walked up to me and asked where the bathrooms were. And I directed them and then realized that they didn't speak the fluent language. And I asked them if they spoke Spanish, and they did. And they told me they were so happy. And they told me that it was the first time they came into Manhattan. It was the first time they went to a museum. And they've lived here their whole lives. And I just told them about everything else that they could do in the city that was free and accessible. And the kids were so excited to talk about the paintings that they were seeing. And that is just one of the experiences that I have on a pretty regular basis. And as part of that, I also began working with an organization, Museum Hue, which will celebrate its second anniversary in February. And what we do is that we provide workshops for cultural workers um, that want to continue working in the cultural sector, but don't necessarily um, have access to whether it's information or don't really know what kind of roles they can be playing in institutions, or if they're already an institution, to extend a hand and see who else can come on board that will add on uh, people of color into that institution. So in a, discussion with that and understanding that the front line of so many institutions are people of color and sometimes they're not recognized as such. You look at a museum and I especially associate more with a security team because I've worked in it so many years and they're the front line. They're the people you're gonna talk to. They're the people that represent the museum or that institution. And how can they not have access to inviting their families to come into the space? And I find that very disheartening all around because it's a place for the public, but I don't know who that public is because they don't look like me. Um, so Museum U has been a really great kind of organization that has provided me with that insight, but has also, um, established a place where it it's also online. We don't have a local or a space at all. It has to be an online space. Speaking of constructing these spaces, where do we construct it? It's constructed online through a Facebook page. And understanding and, and seeing that other institutions exist and that positions and jobs are open and having that time and access for them. That was one story.
Um, so my name's Amin. Actually, I'm subbing for Natasha Dillon, a co-founding member of MTL, who uh, her uh, grandmother got sick, and so she had to go to Richmond to be with her. She sent me some notes, and I'm going to just augment them and then be here as part of Decolonize This Place as part of the conversation. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to mix my thoughts in with her notes just so I can um, give some context for this space, because I think this space is in a way in dialogue with Wage, but in a way is trying to articulate an amended, not an amended space, but a supplemental space to exist, given the type of work that we're doing here, which is a reflection of a lot of work that exists outside. And uh, what I mean by that is that uh, we look at the work that we do here as uh, coming from a movement uh, space, a movement perspective, where the artist is an organizer. This space has allowed us to blur the lines between artists, organizers, activists, um, and the like. It also means that we've had this space for three months, um, and we called it Decolonize This Place, and this is where I'm going to go and read. Decolonize This Place, sorry. Decolonize This Place is a name, but also a verb. The name grows out of um, an action at the Brooklyn Museum earlier this year targeting two exhibitions, Agitprop and This Place, and offering simultaneously a critique of the complicity of the museum in gentrification and mass displacement and the whitewashing of the Israeli and the art washing of the Israeli occupation. During our time here, there are formations that have emerged from indigenous struggle, black liberation, free Palestine, global wage workers, and degentrification. This space has prioritized the presence of people of color with the intention of decentering whiteness as a set of social relationships of power. An attempt, right. Just to clarify, by no means uh, this is a decolonized space. Decolonization is a process of learning and unlearning and rearrangements of relationships. And we have just begun, and this is an attempt. Just like there is never a safe space, this is in process. We began with five strands, but very quickly the space itself expanded to conversations around other struggles with specificity like Puerto Rico um, <clears throat> and the Adivas struggle, the indigenous of India. This was possible because we opened the space as a commons to the movement. We have had productive party, production parties, workshops, screenings, meetings, solidarity dinners, hangouts, talks, and more. There has been endless amounts of labor and love by a lot of folks, many of uh, them who are in the room today, that has gone in making these things happen. Um, <clears throat> and even though artist space follows the wage model, the work that we wanted to do here could not fit into that model. So we think, we are thinking of what to do here as a supplement to wage. And some questions that Natasha poses is it enough just to talk about how much artists get paid? Can we get rid of the word diversity in institutional programming? Who curates and should they be curated artists of color? Who is doing the work to keep these institutions going? How can we grow and sustain the work 
uh, like this and like this in this space in the art world. I don't want to add to that. I just want to be part of the conversation. So um, keep it dynamic. Hello. Great. Hi, everyone. Hi, uh, my name is Sneha Ganguly, and I am the owner of Rajas Art Services, LLC. Uh, I want to reflect on my time as an art handler uh, because I think it's a really important niche in the art market to understand. Uh, anytime you see the production of an exhibition, uh, there's a lot of manual labor and a lot of materials that go into producing them. Um, so I've been in New York for the last two years, and I've had the opportunity to work with uh, small nonprofits to foundations to major institutions. Um, and uh, I guess a couple of my reflections is uh, how I gained access into art handling, because I don't come from a studio art background, was through a desk job at a major museum. Uh, and then I kind of found the department head and expressed my interests, so on. But what was really interesting to me was my time at the desk. Uh, the people in the front of the house of the museum were super representative of New York, was very diverse from the security guards to the uh, greeters to the people at the desk, the AV audio and so on. Uh, but when I changed positions and I went to the back of the house working with curators, conservators, and um, other uh, administrators, uh, you'd see the striking change. It's no longer diverse. It is super white. So uh, it was really interesting because, you know, we're talking about the labor of art, even in architecture, and uh, historically it's been people of color who've been the laborers, and now, uh, especially art handling, uh, it is kind of a blue-collar job elevated to in this, like, white-collar society. And it's really interesting because if you look around in New York, there's packing, trucking, shipping uh, done by every denomination. And they are not represented within major museums, although this is what we do. Uh, uh, <laughs> and so uh, just to kind of give you uh, some numbers, I would say anywhere from like uh, up, uh, up to 10% of the manual laborers within institutions who have direct access to living artists and curators and everyone else on staff uh, behind the scenes, uh, it's only maybe 10%. In a group of 60, there's only six of us, you know? And uh, it's really interesting. The reason I love art handling is because it allows me to maintain a freelance lifestyle and still affords me to uh, do my own organizing and my artwork. Uh, and so I feel really privileged to be there, uh, but it's saddening because it makes me think that then uh, if this allows people to maintain their art practices, and this is one of the best avenues, 
and there's no one of color behind the scenes in these positions, then what are they doing for work? How are they supporting their practices? Uh, you know, and they're not gaining access behind the scenes to these key players that may help them in their careers. Um, so what I decided to do after two years uh, of work, I kind of built my skill set. Uh, and I decided to take the show on the road and start my own LLC. And I decided it was really important to incorporate myself and be an institution within, uh, you know, be an institution within myself. And what would that look like? Uh, and so through my LLC, uh, you know, I, I, I'm blessed because I have this resume now that's growing. A lot of people give me, you know, take a chance on me and, and uh, allow me to work on their projects. Uh, and the art world is super bustling and lucrative, and so there's a lot of labor that's, that's available, or work that's available, I feel. Uh, and uh, I kind of, I, 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 my way of responding to what's happening is by creating this company, I can employ anyone uh, that I think is an artist that uh, you know uh, would be great at the role, and you know uh, people of color, people who don't have any educational backgrounds. You know, some of my uh, best uh, associates have been like Dominican cable men. Like they're great at uh, doing AV shows. Like I'm just being very frank, but you know the, the, these are amazing craftsmen. Uh, they just they, their craft though is not elevated or it's not recognized and they're not allowed to, uh, you know, uh, be part of the art world. Uh, what else? I wanted to talk, ask some questions. Yeah, and I guess the uh, one question I have for you, Lise, uh, for wage. Um, Maybe we can discuss it later. Is uh, I, I, in your in your fee schedule? I I, I didn't see anything for um, art labor, and I understand. But the thing is, because you're a standardizing institution, and when I work with people, I often see them, you know, saying that we're wage certified, and I think it's really powerful and it's it's effective. But even having a line saying like, you know, this is the hourly minimum for labor. Uh, or for an intern, I think would do, uh, uh, I don't know, be a major impact. Um, and, and, you know, I, it, we can talk about unions and stuff, but, you know, uh, having that kind of uh, authority, uh, I think, would be really effective. Um, but, yeah, I think those are all my thoughts. Uh, yep, thank you. Hey, uh, I'd like to thank MTL for having me first off um, tonight. And my name is Nia. I'm a performance artist and recent college graduate. And I would like to respond to the invitation tonight by, as a primary source, I've been living, working, and interning in New York since 2012. Yeah, since 2012. And I'd like anyone on the panel or the audience to direct their questions about, um, I don't know, what it's like to be a young artist in New York right now um, to me, and I can answer them. Thank you. 
Good evening, everyone. Is it on? Yeah. Um, I'm David, and uh, I, I'm going to make a few general remarks um, because my, my brief tonight is as respondent. Um, but I wanted to say something um, about the public. I'm glad that, um, that Ava brought that up earlier because I think that one of the issues um, with museums, I'll, I'll stick to museums for a moment, um, especially in a place like New York, is that they, um, they create barriers to people coming by being extremely expensive. And philanthropy tends to focus on objects, either buildings that are named after people or works of art that are donated to collections and not to access. So there's a kind of emphasis on the public being defined as stuff and not as access. And I really think that, I was thinking about this question of inbuilt inequality and how I could enter it from you know, the thinking I've done as a critic and a historian. Um, and really, I feel like wh when I've gone to museums that are free, for instance, not too long ago, I was in Dallas at the Dallas Art Museum, which is a really terrific um, encyclopedic museum there that is free. And I saw one of the most diverse audiences, to use that word that I guess is vexed in many ways, but there was a more ethnically diverse audience than I'd seen in a major museum in New York. Um, and also in Washington, D.C., where the, the museums are, um, are also free. I think that that is, is, can be true. So what I would like to think about is thinking about what we assume the public to be. Um, I think very often for funders, the public is about large numbers, audiences, and a kind of um, statistical reach. But if we think instead about the public as access and network building, then um, what people maybe might want to give to instead of buildings is in fact um, the capacity for people to have access instead. So I wonder if there's a way, I mean I'm here I guess in part also as a member of the Board of Artists space which is very different from you know larger museums in New York, but when you think about how these institutions are funded, you're really thinking about crafting a philanthropic agenda. So instead of like having the Koch brothers making a plaza in front of the Met, um, maybe the philanthropic agenda as something that seems public, I suppose, because it is on a public street, if we think instead about what is public as giving access, maybe there can be some kinds of changes in thinking. Um, I'd also like to say, I think that um, tonight in the very kind of um, really, I think, affecting and powerful uh, contributions that the panelists have made, there have been kind of three paradigms of decolonization that I've noticed in listening. And I think it's interesting to maybe we could or if it's productive, think about their relative value and whether there are contradictions between them. One is a very economic one. You know, wage makes this real purposeful, ethically thought through decision to think these problems in terms of economics. And I think that that is a very important kind of thing, especially when we talk about um, how badly many of the frontline um, 
museum workers are paid as well. So one way to decolonize one of the, the models that's been presented tonight is an economic one that's really about, um, could be extended to uh, an economic justice model. A second one is really historical one, and that is knowing who builds our museums, for instance, that the White House was made by slaves, that um, people working in um, museums are um, on the front lines are, uh, are more ethnically diverse than the people who are in control. These kinds of historical um, observations and excavations are also extremely important to a decolonizing project. And then the third, um, which MTL represents and decolonize this place represents in their work here at Artist Space and, and elsewhere in Gulf Labor, et cetera, um, is this um, convergence of movement and art practice, um, which in some ways is in contradiction to the economic model. I don't say that to create controversy, but just for us to kind of think through. I mean, one doesn't have to have one or the other, but I think that um, often movement labor is affective labor, and, um, and the economic demands is to say, well, you know, affective labor has its affect, and we all love giving it at times, but on the other hand, we also need to be paid. Um, in order to earn a decent living. Um, so I feel like this has been a really interesting discussion so far because we have these models on the table. And so I would just say, let's discuss, you know? Um, I don't know, Andrew, if you, do you want me to moderate the discussion or do you want to do it? No, I, I can do it. Okay. Can also, uh, just uh, thanks to everyone, yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks to everyone. It was a really sort of beautiful spectrum of voices from many different quadrants of, uh, of the arts economy. Uh, not all of them, but uh, probably more than you usually get in one room at any one time. Uh, and it just struck me in listening to the, some of the comments about how far removed this discussion is from the stratospheric layers of the blockbuster art world economy that the media focuses on, right? The ultra-luxury production of commodities. And uh, we don't necessarily have to try and make connections between these sort of lower echelons of the art world economy and the blockbuster one. Uh, in some ways, there's very little connection between the two. They may be operating in somewhat completely different economies. Uh, and there isn't an awful lot of trickle down. <laughs> in the way in which uh, advocates for the 1% economy like to imagine trickle-down. Um, but that was just something that, I, um, that, that triggered in my mind in listening cumulatively to what, what was said here. Uh, so the, it, unless, there's, um, unless there's something, uh, a dialogue within the, the voices here, uh, and is there, uh, before we move, out into the audience, Amin? I think that what David said is uh, really kind of insightful um, in thinking about this. And I, what I would put to the table after three months of doing Decolonize This Place, um, that although the wage model didn't work in this context, uh, the intention is to think about 
how does movement art, how does the work that's happening right now that is relationship that has a relationship to both the movement and the institution? There's something about being here that's called, you know, that taking an undercommons, putting it towards the struggles that are happening in the street, bringing the bodies that people are saying in the public in this gallery by virtue of their interests and their concerns and their struggles. The one thing I'll caution against, I guess, in the room is white supremacy runs deep and just acknowledging it in word isn't sufficient. And so part of the struggle in doing decolonize this place, although we would want to get paid and everyone would want to get paid, is that there's lives on the line and who makes the decision about these struggles. Like, for example, uh, to what degree if we're saying Black Lives Matter and people are getting killed, and part of the communities that we're bringing here are the families of the people getting killed, right? And then we do an event that's a solidarity dinner, right? A wage model quickly breaks down. Do two of those over a course of three months and you're pretty much over with the kind of budget that you imagine, right? But also, when you look from an organizing space from that, that's space that the state doesn't allow you to have. This is a safer space for those communities to come and the relationships that emerge and the new formations that come out are invaluable, not because all of a sudden they're part of a gallery and they get commodified, but because their ripple effect outside in the city cannot be underestimated. And so when we came to decolonize this place, it was after many failures. The first failure was in Occupy when we couldn't hold the park for more than two to three months. But the, the amount of time that we were there was very important. But then we realized that people of color were actually rendered invisible, though they had a very important role to play in that movement. The result of it was the Bernie, you know, feel the burn kind of thing. That was, that's what was left of it. But then we went on, and I'm, now I'm just mentioning white supremacy and how it can rear its heads in ways that you, we don't understand. As a person who was raised in Palestine and not here, I wasn't familiar with racism in the same way that the you know slavery and all this stuff which is you know in the architecture of this country but one of the things that we did is that after occupy where we didn't have demands and there was 500 emails and we were part of that conversation where we weren't going to have demands because who should speak on behalf of whom open up the space let those people speak on their own behalf we did we organized around debt but the problem with debt is it became a white issue unintentionally, even though it was people of color, right? And that, and how did we know that? When we sat around a circle, and then we were having a conversation, and we were trying to link debt to Martin Luther King's later years, so that it is also about class and all this stuff, and, and racism, and war. And then the conversation was like, we shouldn't do it on Martin Luther King Day, because that's their day. Well, who's the we, right? So that lesson of white supremacy was amongst allies, amongst people that you're organizing with, right? That's how we learned this lesson. So then you fast forward to what we're doing today, is that we wanted to bring these struggles together, and we wanted to not say just people of color, but we wanted to decenter whiteness where we are by virtue of the struggles that we bring together and the new formations that emerge. I'm, I'm just, I just want to put that in the room because we were sparse on the movement perspective that actually isn't in contradiction necessarily with wage, but it is asking us to ask new questions. 
about how can we move in supplement to wage and how wage itself perhaps would like to modify. Yeah, I, I want to in part respond to, to Amin, but also Dave, you know, the question of whether or not one can bring together uh, the question of wage um, and, and, and um, what the other category was, was um, I guess, kind of culture and some of the other issues that have been, been, been brought up, you know, like access. But, but I actually think they kind of come down to the question of value, like what is, what is valued and what is, what, is, what is raised, what is devalued, right? Because that's what that means. It's like black lives has no material value, right? And that's often, you know, my point of like this racial paradigm of human difference is that it constantly produces a condition where black and brown life is marginalized and pushed toward death in order for white life to thrive, right? And that simultaneously with the expropriation of the value of land and labor from, from, from Native Americans and blacks is that you had an aesthetic project. That's what fascinates me around, about these institutions like the White House. And you know, like you read Thomas Jefferson, he's talking about on one hand, like I'm making American civilization and we need these buildings so that Americans can learn what good architecture is, so they can have cultural taste. But on the other hand, he's talking about black bodies as being ugly. He talks about a veil of monotony. So he's producing the signifiers of blackness as something negative, right? You know, that one has to be fearful of, of the black body. It's, it's violent. It tends to, you know, be passionate. It, it's not rational. So, you know, he's producing all of these signifiers that actually have real currency even today. And so, so that, that question of value, it's, it's, it's across the board that these things sort of operate in tandem. And I don't know if they're separate, but they're like cogs that one, one turns, the other one may turn somewhere down here but that they're fundamentally producing these differences that have real consequences about how people live their life and, and, and whether it's a life that flourishes or whether it's a life that's diminished. And, and so I think it is, you can start to make those, those links and I think it's very, very, very important. Um, I wanna complicate this a little bit more. Um, in my definition of white supremacy, uh, I think that, I, I wanna make an example because I'm Indian. Um, I know uh, Indian people who are white supremacists. You know, it's, we're not attacking people who are white. Uh, it's a, like the structure in place that affords certain people um, benefits. So if you are, uh, e even from a minority class, uh, the elite and a new donor class in a museum, um, you are calling the shots, but that doesn't mean I identify with them just because they're of the same color as me. Uh, so it's a little complicated, you know, we're, we're not just fighting, we're, we, it, 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 <laughs> it's hard to say what we're up against um, and how it's, uh, you know, holding us back a little bit. A really kind of general response and and really trying to to think about this value in terms of access and and the public and and what I see and why so many um, you know who are the people that are going to museums who are the people that give value to understanding culture and that is so much about what we're taught, what our histories are, what we haven't been taught, and also what our day-to-day -day struggles are. You know, I may be too busy with three jobs to think about having a day at a museum. 
let alone a museum. I'd rather stay home and eat ice cream all day because I've been working three jobs. And, and that, is, that is major because who has to work three jobs? What is the economy in that? And most of the time that is folks of color, that is blue collar jobs. And if institutions are saying, we're gonna have a free day, we're gonna have hours for the general public, that's already marginalized, a general public, then what, is, what, what are those times? They're gonna be in the evenings, okay, so it shouldn't just be one hour from six to seven because most jobs in the e it takes you an hour to commute out. Are they during the week? Are they on a weekend? When, who are we accessing by saying that we have access to this space? That's it. Yeah, I, I just in response to that, you know, in, in some of my research on museums, there was a really, it's now called the Charles White Museum, but they actually had this mobile, mobile museum project uh, that was in a van, you know, it was in a, and it was a kind of black nationalist project that could move across Detroit to schools, to church, I mean, it found people. Like, if people couldn't get to the, yeah, I mean, it was a completely kind of dispersed, I mean, it was a brilliant project. And it's interesting because then the, they got a museum, they got a building, mm -hmm. and the radical project, the nationalist project was like, it's over. We got boards, we got bills to pay, we've got, you know, and they were concerned that they were gonna abandon a lot of the issues around housing and, and fair access that the museum was actually a part of. They were, they were they, it was a project of conscious raising in the 60s, actually, yeah. So absolutely right. And speaking about the, the history of museums is that so many museums that came out of activist work in the 60s, Museo del Barrio, Studio Museum, they're, now they are institutions, and they're struggling as institutions because they're using an institutional model. So that's also something that is always one to be conscious of and that they're falling into that same place where labor takes sidelines or public and access take the sidelines. I just wanted to, I just wanted to speak to this question of um, would wage like to modify? Yes, Wage would like to modify, but I need to connect that. Sorry, is this cutting out or something? Is it okay? okay. Um, I need to connect that to this issue of funding activism because Wage would have died, you know, a couple years ago if we weren't getting funding. Um, but because we're not getting enough funding, Wage is essentially consolidated into one individual person that you see sitting right here, which is not how it should be operating. Um, so that... There's a problem of, um, yeah, of, I, rather than use the word diversity, we talked about using the word decolonization just instead of diversity. So in order to decolonize wage, it needs to grow. It need, but in order for it to grow, it needs to, it needs to be, that labor needs to be paid for. I mean, I did wage for six years unpaid and I've been paid for two years. And I'm not going back to being unpaid, particularly because I'm not a US citizen. So there are all kinds of you know, underlying issues that make this complicated. Um, but I think the issue of funding activism is going to be increasingly important under a Trump administration. And I think that the argument against getting paid for activism reminds me just like, reminds me of the argument against artists getting paid. Oh, it's a labor of love. You should just do it because you believe in it. It's the same problem. You know, you can't go on doing that forever. It's, it'll kill you, you know, and you shouldn't, people should not be working for free. And I think, I mean, what, yeah, what does it mean for activism to become 
a professional skill because I think it is, it's going to need to be, or it is already one. So, um, yeah, just to give you some insight into the inner workings of wage, it's not a, it's not as simple as it seems, and it would like to grow. It would like to, uh, it would like to decolonize itself. Um, but some of those things are out of our control. And then just to address the issue of why the wage model doesn't work for this project, um, I'm fully aware of that. And we, before this project happened, long before, we call this the Suzanne Lacey problem, which is the problem of social practice projects that involve hundreds of people. Um, and I'm, oh, yeah, there's no, I don't have the answer. So for a wage certified organization, when they, um, many of them do contact me and say, well, what do we do? I just say, just do what you're doing. I don't have a solution for you, so therefore you just need to do your project and find some other form of compensation that feels fair. Because the idea of wage, behind wage certification is that it's a, it's a voluntary model based on the mechanism of self-regulation, which means that those institutions that sign up to do it are invested in doing what's fair and treating artists equitably. So I tell them, you signed up for this, so you have a sense of what's fair, so you need to decide what that is. And that's kind of like where they go off and self-regulate on their own. So we, no, we don't have a solution for this problem. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's all I can say about it. I mean, I think that that's something that we can do with Decolonize This Place is to kind of, and that's what I think you guys have been thinking through. I mean, and that is a way for, for wage to modify, which is a way for wage to align with other organizations. I mean, a line is a pretty weak word, but um, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a starting point. I think uh, just to add to what Lisa was saying, again, I think vocabulary or language is super important. I think people use activism and organizing interchangeably. I think that active, I never identify myself as an activist. I have an issue with that. Um, I think that activism is a specialization and a professionalization of engaging with a struggle to people who are, and you're not accountable to them, right? An organizer is often accountable to a community or to the struggle that they're engaging with. So that's one difference. The second thing that we need to always remember is that part of, I have many friends who organize with unions and they get paid and they hate their life. Because the beginning of money is a problem in movements. So when we talk about getting paid, it's not, it's not the same thing as saying about the movement has resources to take care of each other. How do we take care of each other? And then the answer probably shouldn't be an individual solution. Right? If we're talking about movements, if we're talking about liberation, if we're talking about decolonization, then our solutions or what we propose or the questions we ask and the words we use need to not then reproduce what we already have and fighting against. So I, I say that is because I don't think I'm an activist. I think that that term needs to be understood very importantly. There's many activists that get burnt out. Most of the people that they are fighting for, right, don't show up for the rallies that they're doing, for example, right? So, um, so, so that's kind of a thing. But I also agree in a diversity of tactics. I also believe that wage as an institution needs to maintain itself. I think what this project is bringing to the forefront is something that's happening out in the streets and has been amplified a million-fold after Trump. What are our galleries and our museums going to do as part of the struggle? And in that sense, 
Where are the undercommons? How can we sustain each other? And if other groups have some kind of decolonizing project, how do they deal with the labor that goes into it? And I wouldn't suggest that they get paid for doing it as, as a thing, because then that's just an institutionalization of something. It raises its own concerns. People will make their own decisions, but we're faced with that question, and I don't think we have a good answer for it, which is why we're here today. So you're saying you don't think that people should be paid for organizing work as a rule, or you think it's a... I just want to get clear on that. No, no, I think that people that I know who are doing activist work would love to have resources for their movement, would love to be able to take care of themselves so they can be engaged in the struggle. Getting paid is an answer to that need. And how do you get paid, by whom, right, becomes the type of things that people need to think through. But also drawing a distinction between activist and organizer. That's why most of the time we say here, and I think we have even diverging opinions on this, I consider myself more of an organizer than an activist, right? Yeah, I don't really consider myself either. <laughs> I feel like an artist who just fell into this job. But um, <laughs> I should also say that um, Wagency, the, the, I mean, for me, one of the most important parts of Wagency is its membership, it's fee-based. So it's, you know, it's a kind of union formation, but the idea is that it makes wage more autonomous and self-sustaining and not reliant upon private philanthropy, which, you know, I can't, uh, I have to appreciate <laughs> that we have it. But, um, I mean, I think that's, that's, um, that's critical. Uh, the autonomy of the project is important. Um, Nia, can I draw you into this conversation since you offered... Uh, <laughs> to be a primary source. Uh, interning has uh, become an obligatory rite of passage for, <laughs> for young people into uh, the cultural sector, for better or worse. And um, I mean, when I ask my students about it, when we study it, when we analyze it, students who've interned always have something to say about the benefits and then usually something to say about the downsides. And uh, so drawing in your experience and particularly here at Artist Space, you've been, you know, sort of, uh, you witnessed and participated to some extent and decolonized this place. Um, how does how the experience of that reflect on your, um, you know, your position as an intern, let's say? I'd say maybe with this show, there's been a lot more flexibility. Um, it's been, like in performance in general, like there's more flexibility as, as an intern because you never know what's gonna happen. It's not like you have like fixed rules of like watching a show of hanging works. Um, I don't know, I think it's given me a lot more freedom that the show was happening. Because um, I feel like I was also kind of a part of the show because of events like this, so yeah. And, and you've interned at other spaces? Yeah, never any like super big ultra luxury gallery type thing. Just uh -huh. uh, another Lisa Cooley gallery, which is now closed um, in the Lower East Side. And I've also interned at uh, performance art cabarets in Brooklyn and that kind of thing. So always kind of like smaller scale things. Uh huh. So you're a serial intern right now, which, which is a very, very common experience. Um, yeah, right? but I don't, I don't know. I never felt like I was trapped in anything or for too long of an amount of time or that kind of thing. Like, uh -huh. 
I think that's one thing to keep in mind. Like you, you stay. It's like school. It's like for an experience, but you don't do it forever. Okay. Um, maybe it's time to open this up uh, to the floor. Um, please. Uh, we encourage you to identify yourself if you speak and try to speak in the I rather than the we, which is a general principle here that decolonize this place. Um, how should we do the mic, Tyler? Okay, I will give it to you. <laughs> yeah. Anyone want to? Um, I was just wondering if, um, this is a question to Liz, really, if um, Wagency will be kind of international in scope or if it will be limited to artists working in the US. Um, I think it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be limited to the US, but it's going to be, you know, kind of an issue when a wage-certified artist exhibits internationally, I think the idea would just be that, uh, I don't think there'll be sort of regulation or expect expectations around uh, um, what that art a wage-certified artist would have to ask for, but I think just on principle, it's the same principle that I just cited about institutions since it's voluntary and it's self-regulating, um, wouldn't really make sense to go and do an exhibition somewhere else and not insist on compensation. It's just a question of how much um, and we can't really determine that because, you know, each the economy of every city and state and nation is different. So it would just be a gargantuan project to try to regulate internationally. But, um, yeah, the idea would, it would be national, but with like a kind of, it would be maybe a first attempt or with the potential of it becoming a more international project if necessary. Um, I guess this is for multiple people, whoever wants to speak to this, because it's about, the question is about building um, solidarity amongst different classes of workers um, in the art economy, because people are speaking from different subject positions here, both um, in terms of your individual identity, but also in terms of the role that, you, the, the work that you do, um, a security guard, an art handler, intern, academic, artist, activist. And it strikes me that one of the things about, or sorry, organizer, sorry, 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 sorry. I caught myself. <laughs> um, that one of the, as somebody who has worked in the um, cultural sphere art world, um, not as an artist, but many other hats, something that I find um, frustrating maybe about wage is the emphasis on artists at, as not, not necessarily at the expense of others, but that the, the view is really um, so much focusing on artists that an institution could be wage certified but not pay interns, for example, um, seems to me to be something that could be addressed. So my question, I guess, with all of that being said is that how, if instead of keeping these identities separate, understanding that they are, they have individual concerns, but that 
the, over, the overarching concern of being underpaid or undervalued is shared. So if you're thinking about building, in terms of movement building, um, how do you address that, is, I guess is the question, or what is the best way, if we're, if we're building a politics around this, really thinking um, in, in the larger, in the micro and the macro at the same time. Sorry, I don't want you to dominate the answer, period, but I just want to speak to that because um, Wagency really is an attempt to address this problem. Um, and by defining um, artist, as I said, I don't know if you were here during my spiel, but um, defining artist as content provider um, opens up the possibility of including other forms of labor under the umbrella of Wagency, so like a curator, for example, could be um, a content provider. Um, and I'm hoping, I mean, if we can expand the definition of content provider, we could be potentially certifying um, small alliances or associations or unions um, and certifying that they would only uh, work with organizations that would, uh, or wage certified organizations. There's a potential to connect these things. Um, but again, you know, the, I think I think it's. I mean, this goes to your question before about couldn't we put some sort of baseline standards about internships or um, minimum wage standards for art handlers? I mean, there's a few things. There's already people working on that, like the Art Handlers Alliance, which we want to respect the work that's already being done. But the question, the the decision to not do that at the beginning with wage certification was just to make it possible for wage certification to have a chance at succeeding as a project. So to make too many demands at one time would have meant it would have been unlikely for an institution to adopt, to become want to become wage certified. Um, and so it's been one big experiment, I have to say. I mean, it's not like we knew what was going to happen, just like we didn't know what was going to happen when we did the wage survey. I mean, I think that's the one, that's one of wages, um, that's something that wage does fairly well is it's kind of agile in the sense that it responds to conditions as it finds them. So now we know um, that, this is a, that this is necessary because people are telling us it is, so we can incorporate it. Um, and that's what, that's, um, it's always helpful to understand that, but I think Wagency is an effort to broaden wage beyond its myopic focus on fees, because now, I think, this is what I've been saying, is now that can finally happen, now that we've seen what wage certification is capable of. Um, and it was amazing to hear you say that it had some kind of power or clout, I can't remember what word you used. I was, that comes as a surprise to me always, you know, so. Um, yeah, hopefully more to come. I want to speak to to kind of add to this is that Museum Hue really came out of realizing that people of color in many different aspects of what makes it the labor and the value and the production of a museum. It, people of color and where they are, where they're stationed and where that solidarity happens. Um, just being able to have access to a job that is available and if it stays internal, who has access to it? And creating this has been an ongoing experience, has been an ongoing network on who gets who who wants to participate and who wants to work in solidarity to have these jobs um, be open to everybody when they're open to the public that's not everybody that's what we have found out over and over again that access is always limited in one form or another so we're 
still growing and we're still trying to figure out where to make those lines. And for me personally, it was to the point that I couldn't believe I was hired at any kind of institution, looked around and realized that I was oftentimes the only person of color. And I had to step back and, 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 and be part of the system that brought other people with me so that I wasn't alone. Hi, um, I also have a question about the wage program, um, but it, this is not a, pro, a, pro, a question to Liz, uh, so anyone else, if you want to speak up or disagree with, disagree with me or to um, clear some of my confusions, please do so. So, um, so following up earlier discussions about who should be funding the, um, the movements or organizations or artists or activists or organizers, um, I think um, I think the many non-profit organizations are are suffering their own financial problems as well. So, in some level, um, artists, the underpaid artists or unpaid interns, and these organizations are somehow on the same boat in the larger um, art economy or market or industry. So, I'm wondering if it would be more effective to go to those who sponsor these organizations, the non-profit. Um, organizations like those who have the money or those who can really influence the decisions being made at this um, at these nonprofit organizations yeah thank you I, I think uh, I didn't, well, I don't think that it's the idea of people funding. What I was trying to kind of get at is that we need to find alternative ways of take care, taking care of each other because that's necessary for self-determination. No one's going to fund you and actually you're going to maintain your freedom. <laughs> that's why we have an NGO industrial complex that's part of the problem. And most of the movements are operating outside of it. To the extent that you have people working in NGOs, they're unhappy and sad. Most of the people, really, most of the <laughs> really, I'm not, most of the people um, who are young, who are here, 21, 22 from the Bronx, working with different NGOs are here bringing their own politics because there is no room in the NGOs that they're working for. Um, so I don't, think, I don't think we're trying to say NGOs need to fund our movements. I think we're kind of posing it to each other, of like how do we take care of each other? How do we alternative economies with a political purpose of struggle in order to liberate, in order to decolonize? One thing I wanna put in the room, and I think this kind of reaches out to Eva, which is it's not simply about rearranging, for example, the times of museums and all of a sudden you'll get the people that don't have the privilege to attend, right? Because it's class-based. Um, and within that, what you know, when we say white supremacy, it isn't about making everyone equal and then there is no white supremacy, but what is the role of reparations in this conversation? You know, what is the role of reparations? Because reparations could then allow for the person to attend a museum. Um. Hey, I'm, my name is Peter. I work for an organization called Triple Canopy. Um, I have a question about um, 
well, really for anybody, um, to the degree an organization's priorities, an institution's priorities are set by its board of directors. Um, I'm curious whether anybody on the panel has anecdotes, historical or otherwise, about efforts, um, stories of success or horror, um, to broaden those boards of directors, to be more inclusive of, um, you know, for example, people who live in the immediate community um, or are front of the house workers? That's my question. As earlier mentioned, I, I am I'm, a, I'm an art historian and critic, but I am on the board of Artist Space. One of the, I mean, this goes to the previous question too. I mean, it's very complicated. This kind of ecology of philanthropy. I mean, we've tried on our board to stay half. Well, we've succeeded um, to stay half artists, and um, we've depended upon the generosity of artists to give works of art to keep ourselves going. It's been very difficult, actually, to um, to grow, which was the ambition of, of our previous director. Um, and I personally have a lot of, I mean, to go back to what Amin said, once you institutionalize, or maybe it wasn't you, but um, the values of the institution become the ones that you have to adhere to. So. Um, it's hard to stay small. It's hard to stay where you're at. And um, it means then do you start to try to attract board members who are not um, committed to the mission of the institution? Because frankly, there's no public support for artist space for a place like this. So not that I'm complaining, it's just a fact. And um, so the question is how do you maintain um, a vision that is consonant with an artist's institution without scaling up to a level where those values are undermined by the philanthropy you're receiving. And I would say there's no good answer to that. It's except to, main, to take the risky decision to keep the board composed as it is, which we have done so far, and I hope we will continue to do. Um, which means that those values are at the table. We are not as diverse a board as, as we should be. I mean, that's a problem, and it's one we're trying to address but have not addressed successfully there for, uh, thus far. I just, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. I just want to say I don't think it's inevitable that just because you become an institution that you become an institution. I mean, I don't, that's, that's the thing that I'm struggling with with wage, and I, I don't see it as a done deal. I don't... Um, I think it's almost like the process of reckoning with your own white supremacy as a white person. It's like an ongoing practice that you have to keep constantly keep checking yourself. Um, and I think that's true in organizing work. People need to check their, as I say, check their will to power. You know, there's a lot of ego investment in organizing work. It's not, none of these are pure systems, you know? Mm -hmm. um, they didn't start out as pure systems and they don't inevitably become corrupted in that same sense. So um, with wage, like for example, we get funding from the Warhol Foundation and the Rubin Foundation, and you know I still say a lot of things about philanthropy. I'm still really critical of philanthropy, and I, sometimes when I do it, I, you know, my heart jumps into my throat, and I think, oh my God, that's the end of wage, and then I think, oh maybe that would be great. I can get a vacation. <laughs> I actually think mm -hmm. that could be a good thing, but um, 
I'm not going to stop doing it. I, I, we can't, you know. And if it, and I mean, I always sort of, I sometimes talk about wages one long performance because we've been performing the fact that this tiny demand that we're making is so, it, it's, it's obviously, um, you know, uh, not so easy to realize this demand, which is like a kind of performance in itself. And so if wage um, ends up collapsing under the weight of its own um, outspokenness in the face of its funders, then we've made a point and that will be the end of wage, but that's that's what I mean about, yeah, I don't think it's, in, it, we're inevitably going to become the kind of institution that we don't want to be. Can I just say, say something in response to that? I totally agree with you, but I think that, I don't think it's inevitable that institutionalization results in a kind of ossification, let's say, or zombie, you know, bigger is better thing, but I think, as you said, it has to be fought against at every single juncture. And I think it's very difficult. And especially as an institution gets larger, it gets more difficult. I mean, one reason that you can keep yourself honest is that it's you, you know, and you want to, so. Hi, uh, just a couple of quick thoughts, I guess. Well, first of all, thank you for your generosity of insight. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'm just gonna think out loud a little bit really quickly. I'm wondering if there might be this strange kind of dual character actually that's sort of emerging um, from this conversation probably exists out there um, in terms of art economies. It feels like there's some tension that might exist between the global nature of the commodification of art and how it acts as currency. Um, and the very kind of national way that it serves as a project, and I think Mabel spoke to that um, very well in terms of the history of the museum, but also I'm just thinking in terms of how specific uh, what we're talking about right now in terms of wage structure is to the US. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering if anyone can speak to maybe um, other ways that uh, arts and cultural policy function in other countries. Um, as just kind of a, a, a place of comparison. It also strikes me that freedom is a really important word in, in all of this um, because it also strikes me that maybe the art economy is never really separate from the state. Even when you're going to a private funder, that might speak in some sense to the way that the state has retracted itself from certain civic responsibilities that it owes to us. And I don't know, maybe that opens a space for um, a particular kind of demand that we can make. Um, upon the state in terms of art. Uh, and then the final question I had actually had to do with uh, in this really important project, I think of um, a, a moment of thinking of different definitions of artist and moving towards maybe movement as part of that. Um, how much will that require reevaluating our commitments to um, I, what I see as kind of an ongoing fetishization of authorship as a model. Um, I study architecture, history, and theory, and, and it's something that I, I continually think of because there's so much cultural capital that comes with being, you know, considering yourself as a designer, as an author with a capital A, and that hasn't left. And I think that's, I, it's really struck me, particularly with this past week, there was uh, the, the very brutal murder of a seven-year-old indigenous girl in Colombia, Silviana, by a very rich architect um, I'm not psychologizing architects at all, that's not uh, the point, it's, but it made me think very much in terms of how architecture as a profession is attached to a particular kind of uh, 
philosophical structure, uh, metaphysical structure that reproduces uh, elitism. Um, and I think that's incredibly important to think of, especially when we're training architects to go into favelas and think of themselves as saviors sometimes, not all the time. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Um, I think great, great question. Um, I, I d actually do want to respond to the question. I, you know, I have a friend who, um, Haitian American artist who lives in Europe, um, and it's interesting. He landed in Berlin primarily because he can actually work as an artist in in Germany. He has health care. He, you know, he can find a place to live. At least for now, he's been able to find a place to live. But, but also access to ways in which he can produce his work that he could not do any longer in New York City. And it was interesting, you know, the years I known to kind of watch him bounce from studio to studio, especially in this neighborhood. And at a certain point, he just, I, you know, I give up. I, I can't, I can't do my work. And he actually had to find somewhere else to to, to work. And you know, he's surprised, but he landed in Germany 15 years ago. And and in fact, has been able to, you know, ma maintain a practice that isn't necessarily mainstream, but committed to his own practice and engaging in other ways and in other other projects. Uh, he's interesting. He's trained as an architect, so, <laughs> but but his, but his work is actually, you know, quite powerful, particularly as a as a queer artist. So so I do think you're right. It is kind of a lot of this conversation is very specific to to the American, you know, kind of art market and context and the way in which institutions operate. So I'll leave it there. Um, the person here has been wanting to speak for a while. Thank you, everyone. Um, in considering this conversation about, or about the relationship between institutions and care, I'm also thinking about the way institutions arise as a form of care. Um, so when we talk about El Museo or a Weeksville Heritage Center, for example, these physical sites that have kind of formed and congealed around a particular ethos and service of a particular set of subjectivities um, and now find themselves embedded in a real hostile philanthropic ecosystem, they're failing, right? They're losing, as in like their sites are <laughs> in jeopardy of um, not existing anymore. And so the question that I would like to pose to all of you all and to the room at large is, should we be thinking about um, the ways in which these physical sites no longer remain permanent and become kind of mobile? What does it mean for them to move in that direction and then kind of spatially have a different relationship to land? For Weeksville, you know, that site is such an important site as the place where one of the first free black communities in the country, right? And so for it to physically be there means something psychologically, and yet its physical space is also in danger um, due to the way philanthropy works. So I guess I'm just thinking like, how should we reconsider kind of the spatial dynamics of our arts institutions that emerge and kind of come onto the scene from a deep needed place of protection, of care, of rigorous kind of hedging and fortifying? And what does it mean to lose those sites? Um, <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, it's a great question. You know, people, people who have uh, frequented this space and who have used it, it has been so beautiful and strategic and powerful. And uh, they're mourning its loss before it has ended. Um, this is uh, something that uh, we've had people approach us wanting to squat the space. <laughs> Genuinely, we had people People who are here who are saying, should we write to the board of directors? Can we request longer? 
Um, there's something also about Manhattan that's not accessible to anyone, but that actually unifies the boroughs as a site which actually the state has separated us or the city into neighborhoods and pockets where we don't even know whether you're struggling as an artist or how to come together. And if you come together in a space, then it's politics isn't sufficient for you, that it doesn't have a decolonial ethos, that it doesn't think about you know, black liberation, that it thinks everything's okay, right, in some respect. Or it's very narrow, in which case it's still just one community. And the reason we have these formations here is so we can generate new political solidarities, but it's not through an event like this, that's not where it happens. It happens through a space without a pre-articulation of a unity. There is no such thing. So how do we have togetherness? And I think that if we were staying here and we said no, I said no for my personal opinion, but because I don't think the solution is a permanent space. Because of the, it's not a, it's not a fear of an institutionalization. I think this space and this opportunity has offered another alternative for how artists can engage we, with the galleries and the museums to reclaim them. And there should be, we call it DTPs, there should be a thousand DTPs in this city that are networked together, that have that care, that has that politics, that decenters whiteness, that isn't just about organizing, because no one wants to organize, no one wants to sit in a meeting of organizing, right? Um, and then in the advent of Trump, when people are talking about sanctuary cities, which is actually a, largely a way to get around the issue because many people kind of peddle that as a solution to rounding up Muslims, rounding up, you know. We need our institutions to rethink that, but not taking them over, but how do we have new relationships that are beyond just institutional critique, I wanna get paid more, perhaps. But what that requires is, and that's why I think it's separate from wage, because both can coexist. We're on a ladder of thinking through these things, and the Trump uh, event may have seemed like catastrophic, but people have been living through it for generations and generations and generations. What we have is just a new group of people joining, right? Um, and so how do we build power this way? And what is the role of art and artists and art institutions, small, big, these kind of things? And that's why I think this space is kind of calling us in this room to really just think about that. But I think care is necessary, and I think that being here for a year, this would look different. And I don't know what it would look like, but it would, set a pose, it would pose a set of challenges that are very different than what we could, could manage for three months. <clears throat> I was, um, wage is probably going to start charging for wage certification because it's a service that we're providing. And I mean this a bit tongue in cheek, but you could provide Decolonize This Place as a service because it is a service. It's a service that all arts organizations need and should they should pay for it if they're not willing to do it themselves. That would be a way of funding it, mm -hmm. but of course it would be, you know, it's a little creepy, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just wanted to add on to uh, what Jess was saying earlier a little bit about, you know, taking care of institutions and also thinking about institutions um, 
and thinking about them as champions and you know how we think and divide and think of like consciously this institution is not decolonized and this institution is a decolonized institution and thinking of like championing diversity I think that um, I'm also a museum worker a cultural worker and I've seen both sides and a lot of different sides and I think that we have to be very careful about you know putting in certain institutions as like the champions of diversity because it gets really, really, you know, white supremacy is really deep, right? And even in these spaces, it can seem like we have models of diversity or we have certain people at certain places and certain positions. And I think that, you know, that kind of, you know, if you talk to those people, it's like it's alienating this this silence and this this alienation of not of not being able to really um, you know do the work that you want to do because of all of these other um, because of white supremacy, right? And and just like naming it, um, but also you know showing support and thinking about what institutions and artists and and places we all have agency we can go and support those shows that we want to see and artists and you know who would have thought that black lives or black women artists for for black lives matter at the new museum you know that it was so incredible and and it filled the space and and it was one night you know so we we still have to think about what that would look like if it was a consistent practice for an institution like the new museum and other museums to actually open up the space and care and and you know and and I think that you know, sometimes even small things like talking to people if you know you know if you know or or calling people out and thinking about um what your what our own individual power is and and what that could mean in supporting artists, you know, I think that people are always like, how to support, you know, institutions post-Trump? It's like, well, support the artists, right? Artists make the art, and, and so all of those, I think, um, that idea of kind of like really um, consciously decolonizing yourself and thinking that this is an artist that I want to see, and this is, you know, an artist that I want to see in this space, and talking to people and saying, you know, I haven't seen you you know, like thinking about all of the great women artists that are having such a great show. Everybody's waited 50 years to have all of their solo retros in these major institutions. And it's because of all of these really steep, um, you know, ideals and, and, and visions that are, uh, that we're still waiting for. Like, and, and I think one thing that you know, we're sort of talking around and and thinking about and theorizing, but the urgency of all of this is, is something that we need to address and how this is urgent. You know, we don't have time to look back 50 years from now and think, okay, well, now we'll have a retrospective on Black Lives Matter and how it looked like and the aesthetics of it. Um, and so I think that, you know, we have to consciously think about the urgency, our agency, and, and what we choose to support and how we choose to decolonize ourselves and our practices. It's not so far away and far removed. And I think that, you know, being in institutions, it gets so alienating and it's so kind of like, who am I, what am I doing, you know, and what am I doing? It's not like changing hours or, or even when you have, you know, a quote-unquote diverse community show up, it doesn't mean that they're having the experience that they need or want or, or can get, 
you know, it's just you're filling in bodies. And so I think I want to really just be careful of, of championing certain, you know, nonprofits or certain institutions or certain agencies because they show, you know, X, Y, Z or that their crowd or that their people looks diverse or even that they have diverse staff. I feel like if you talk to people there, you know, it's still, it's still not as as decolonized as we would like to be. And I also and also think about just maybe really thinking about what decolonized mean. I think it's it's important. That's all. I, I want to add something real quick to that. Thank you, PJ. Um, and in terms of also just thinking about global workers, and I think that's just something that's been thrown out in the arts too. And one of the things that I always tell folks when they say like, "What? Um, where should I go to see art, or what should I be seeing now?" and all I keep thinking is so many people in the art worlds and how despair it is is that someone can tell me I went to Miami and saw this, I went to Basel and saw that, I was in London to see this, and they couldn't make their way up to the Bronx to see the Latin American Biennial, or they couldn't go out to Queens to see amazing retrospectives, or they couldn't go out to the Brooklyn Museum to see another show, um, and that is a huge gap for me that is so apparent so quickly. You can be and know so much of the world, but you don't know what's in your own city. Like, let's be real. So uh, we tried to end on time here uh, with our events, and uh, we're, we're, we're at time. Just to respect everyone's schedules, especially on Saturday evening. And uh, so I really, I, I think, I hope that we've made some good connections this evening and that uh, people, when they, uh, when they think and talk about this issue, that they, they do so, recognizing the, the, full, uh, the full spectrum of uh, voices and labors that enter into the, I guess what you should call the 99% part of the art world economy. Um, and uh, again, I really wanted to thank everyone for their time this evening and, and your time. And uh, stick around and mingle because a lot of the work in this space happens and conversations after events like this. There's, there's beer there and there's, uh, there's good cheer in the room. Thank you for coming. Thank you.